All right, let me pray for us and we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we thank you that you are a God who accomplishes everything that you intend to. And we thank you that we, uh, we are those who have been benefited uh, hugely. We've been given life. Uh, we've been given full forgiveness. We've been called your sons and daughters. We've been declared righteous because of you accomplishing your purposes in this world. And we thank you that we see that most clearly in what you've done for us in Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, uh, that we celebrate him this morning. And we pray that you'd be with us as we look to your word to see how we now, as your church, as your people, participate uh, in that ongoing mission, in proclaiming and living out that mission. We pray that you would bless us this morning. And we pray through Christ. Amen. Okay, uh, this is second to last week of this class where we've been talking about the mission of God, where we've said that uh, mission is not some sort of tangential uh, kind of afterthought or tack on to what the Bible is all about, but it's actually at the heart of everything that God does. And so um, we, we say rightly that the Bible is all about Jesus, but then we ask the question, well, what about Jesus? Primarily, it's about Him uh, revealing who God is and uh, His... Um, his mission to come to seek and save the lost, to, uh, to perform and accomplish this mission of rescue. So uh, we've said that this, is, this happens throughout the Bible. And so what we've, that the objective of this class has been to see that everything God does is furthering His mission and that our lives as individuals and as a church are wrapped up in that mission as well. And so what we've said, and we'll talk uh, most specifically about this this week um, relative to other weeks, is that mission is not something that the church does as much as it is something that the church is in its very essence. And so that, that's what we'll talk some about this morning, that uh, quote uh, from right there that we've had every week that I won't read now. And we've traced this theme of mission from creation through the fall and then all the way through Israel's history in the last couple weeks We've looked at how uh, God's mission find its, finds its culmination in the person and work of Jesus. We looked at the kingdom a couple weeks ago and the incarnation. And then Ryan talked last week about uh, the cross, the resurrection, and then the ascension as well. We'll dip back into some of the ascension stuff this week. Um, and so, in some sense, we're turning this week to, to what would be the most immediately applicable situation. If you look at the, the topic, the mission of God in the church... So this is where we find ourselves uh, as direct recipients of the, the application this week. So as an introductory question here, as we think about the mission of God in the church, um, how might people answer the question as to what the church is or what the purpose of the church is? Just to get us going, right and wrong answers, good and bad answers, all that. Place of healing, yeah, Beth. Yeah, to encourage people to know, love, and serve Jesus. Yep. Place to confess. Mm-hmm. That's great because it's the body of Christ. It's a picture. Of Christ to the world. Yes. Yes, as instrument to carry out his mission. Yes. That's where we're going. That's it right there. What about some, I thought we'd get some kind of crazier off the wall, incorrect purposes 
all that too. Like the social club or something like that, or no? Yeah, yeah. I guess in a, in a there's a good sense in which it's a social club. Uh, maybe I, yeah. A safe place, okay, yeah. Okay, there we go. That's one. Yeah, yeah. A place for networking for business purposes. Yeah, where you can make the connections you need. Okay, that's good. I wanted to get at least one that was a little off the wall and not in line with what we're talking about. Okay, so here's where here's where we're going today. I want to say this: that the church is equipped by the Holy Spirit to be the people through whom Jesus' mission is carried out in the world. Okay? Uh, the church is equipped by the Holy Spirit, so we're going to be looking specifically at Pentecost this morning, to be the people through whom Jesus' mission is carried out in the world. And we'll talk some at the end as to then uh, just make some connections as to why church planning would be significant, why we should care about churches and having more churches. Um, so we're going to describe this in, very ways, but in various ways, but this is what the church is. So if you think back to where Ryan ended last time, um, we had seen that Jesus ascended in Acts 1. There's also an account of that in Luke, in Luke 24. And uh, what happens after that is that Jesus spends approximately 40, or after his resurrection, he spends about 40 days ministering on earth in this resurrected bodily form. We don't have much uh, in the Bible as to what happened during that time, but it's kind of interesting to think about that, though, that Jesus was in his resurrected body carrying out ministry on earth for 40 days. Um, But then this question arises in after Acts 1. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father where he is seated on the throne and becomes, he, he sits then as this king in this very visible way over the whole of creation. But the question becomes, what do we do now? Uh, or, or how is he going to continue his mission now in his bodily absence? He goes away, and you think, well, that's probably going to be the end of the real ministry, right? Because Jesus would be the one who's actually going to carry that out in bodily form. It's not the case, right? So the ultimate answer to this is the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. The body of Christ then is, is gathered or constituted and then commissioned and equipped for mission. So um, here's what I want to do. I want to I first just point out some ways in which there, there's this continuity in, with God's mission in and through Israel that's now carried out in and through the church. Uh, and we'll remember back to this huge, huge promise to Abraham, Abram at the time in Genesis 12, that, that God has made this promise to bless Abram. He's going to give him this land. He's going to, uh, he's going to make his descendants as numerous as stars in the heavens. And he's going to bless. He's going to bless the world through his seed. So, uh, so here, how does that promise come to fulfillment in the church? Just a few points as we lead up to what happens at Pentecost. First, Jesus gathers his new Jew Gentile community. A few, a couple points on this. Uh, you remember that the number of disciples that Jesus calls. How many is that? Twelve. Right. So Jesus calls 12 disciples, and that's that's very intentional in the number that he would select. Uh, It's meant to signify this new community of followers that would correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's gathering a new Israel to himself from the very start. And the significant thing about this, uh, this community that he gathers is that it's not just ethnic Israelites. Uh, he's bringing in the nations, the Gentiles, because that's been God's intention from the very start. That was part of the promise to Abram, and now it's being fulfilled in Jesus, and the disciples are, are this, um, 
the beginning of that. And so then you, we read later on in Ephesians 2, this is on your sheet, where, of course, the huge issue, one of the huge issues that Paul is dealing with in, uh, in these New Testament churches is how do these two groups of people who had been um, significantly divided and, and warring with one another in some cases for hundreds and hundreds of years. How do we now live in this same community of people, both united to Jesus, both fully receiving the benefits of his work? So here's, here's how Paul talks to this primarily Gentile community at the church of Ephesus. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul gives those the the, the status of those Gentiles before uh, they had been brought near by by Jesus. They were separated from Christ, which is that's really the word for Messiah there. They're separated from this promise of the Messiah separated from the commonwealth of Israel, and they were strangers to these covenant of promise, covenants of promise. And the net result is that they are without God and without hope in the world. Um, So Jesus has gathered now this new Jew-Gentile community and goes on to say in Ephesians 2 that he's created one man in place of the two. So there's this new Jew-Gentile community that is in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and in continuity with the people of God of the Old Testament. It's a new Israel, though. So there's going to be multiple ways here to explain how this church is going to be the community through whom God accomplishes His purposes. Um, but part of it, and this is the second point, comes in this restoration of the image of God in humanity. And, and if you remember back to that first week where we talked about creation, uh, Adam and Eve were given this royal task. They, they were to show forth what God was like in the world as they ruled and subdued the land. And they were to do that in a way that, that mirrored God's goodness, uh, favor, kindness, and grace. And so it's really interesting then what, uh, what Jesus has done and how the church is described in the New Testament. And so this is our second point. All who are united to Jesus, both ethnically Jew and ethnically Gentile, are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is what uh, Peter says in chapter 2 of his first letter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here's a quote then from, uh, from Michael Williams. He says, God calls the church as he did Israel to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation, to mediate the blessings of the covenant to a world estranged from God, to proclaim and live out the word of God, to be a mission nation. So that's a, uh, th- that section from 1 Peter is almost a direct quote of Exodus 19, 5 and 6, where this is, this is what Israel is explicitly called to be, this holy nation, a, um, a royal priesthood. Now Peter says, that is you, church. You are the ones who are to function in this way. So the church takes up this call to be a blessing to the world, to take this message to the ends of the earth. And this is now inherent in who we are as the people of God. It's what Peter's saying, and it's part of what it means to be children of Abraham. So, okay, here are ways then 
that this task is, is to be accomplished. So thirdly, Jesus now sends. He's gathered his new Jew-Gentile community. Now he sends his new Jew-Gentile community. First, we're to make disciples of all the nations. We've got the Great Commission there that Ryan talked about last week. And um, he emphasized how, how important the ascension is in this, that Jesus would be reigning as king. And that's what it says in verse 18, that all authority has been given to him. And it's in light of that authority over all the world that he says, now go. Go out and, and uh, baptize, make disciples of all the nations. Um, so he, as king, he sends them out. So we're to make disciples of all nations. B, we're to be known by our love. This comes in John 13. Uh, Jesus also mentions this in John 17. But this is, this, is called, this is this new commandment that he gives. It's what we celebrate on Maundy Thursday. Uh, because this was the commandment given from Jesus to the disciples the night before he was crucified. And so this is what he says after washing their feet. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, that is how we love one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so just a quick point of application here. I think this is really important to keep in mind. Our life together and our fellowship together, our community together, our relationships with one another are not something separate from our mission in the world. Do you see that's what Jesus is saying? He's saying that the quality of our life together, the way that we care for one another and love for one another, is actually one of the primary ways in which the watching world is going to come to know Jesus himself. And I think that is huge to, to remember, that, that, uh, that, that it's not as though these are separate things where you've got fellowship over here, community over here, love of one another over here, and then mission all the way over here. No, the two are, are very much uh, wrapped up together. Yeah, Doug. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a Jew-Gentile community. So I, I reflect on how churches now tend to distinguish themselves from other churches instead of reaching out and following the Great Commission. Uh-huh. And so a lot of people we meet are already members of other churches, even though they may not really know the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 and that's um, to uh, to kind of riff off that a little bit. Uh, this has application for sure um, across uh, churches and denominations and traditions for sure. Um, it's I just applied it as within a particular body of people um, and how we love one another as this congregation. But this applies, and certainly John 17 does, to how we would think about churches and other denominations and, uh, in, in a broader way. And that's where it almost becomes overwhelming to think about that. Uh, but there's very real application to being known by our love for one another, even with those with whom we disagree on secondary uh, doctrinal matters. So that's... We talked a long time about that. Um, yeah, it's good. 
So uh, we're making disciples of all the nations. This is a call to the church. We're to be known by our love. Thirdly, we are sent as Jesus is sent. Uh, John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And a quote from Bartholomew and Goheen, In the same way that Jesus himself carried out his mission, the newly gathered community is to carry out its mission, continuing to bring his life into a needy world. And this is where that, uh, as Janet mentioned, the, that we are to represent Jesus uh, and model what Jesus is like being his body. That's some of what's happening here too, where it, I think that language of being the body of Christ is very intentional in that way, and that Jesus, through his people, now carries out these, these, uh, this work, this, the, um, this ministry and giving of life to people. So we become the bearers of that message and the ones who embody that message. And in that sense, we're sent just as Jesus is sent. All kinds, again, of application we could make there, but we're just looking at these, these general or these, these statements as to um, who we are as the people of God. And then in the language of, of Luke, uh, we are to be his witnesses. This is sort of his favorite term. Uh, John does this a lot too. He talks about being witnesses. So this is uh, Luke 24. And, say this, and this is Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then the probably relatively familiar passage there in Acts 1. You will receive power with the Holy, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of all the earth. And then finally, there are other images we could choose here. This is a nice summary one of Paul's in 2 Corinthians 5 that we're to be ambassadors for Jesus. And so this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we have been recipients of this reconciliation. And now we are the bearers of that message of reconciliation to the, to the world. So we're sent to do these things. Jesus sends his Jew-Gentile community to do this. Now, fourthly, this leads to the equipping for that task. So Jesus equips his new Jew-Gentile community with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And this comes in fulfillment of, of all kinds of Old Testament hopes. Uh, Peter talks a lot about Joel 2. That's a big passage. We're not going to look at that one um, this morning. Uh, I want to look at Ezekiel 36, which is another passage that, uh, that we, where we see this, or where Pentecost is a fulfillment. Um, so open up in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. It's 723 in the Pew Bible there, if you want to grab that. We won't read this whole chapter, but I want to point out, uh, I want to point out here the connection between kind of what the problem is with Israel here, why the prophet is speaking the way he is to them, what the real problem is, but then also to see uh, how the Spirit is the solution to this problem. Um, so, Page seven. Actually, we're going to look at uh, seven twenty-four because we're going to start on uh, at verse sixteen. This is really interesting. 
Um, so the promise of the Spirit in Ezekiel 36 is for the sake of the name of the Lord. Over and over again, that's what Ezekiel talks about. The problem is that they have profaned the name of the Lord by what, they, by what Israel's done and their idolatry and their disobedience. They've profaned the name of the Lord among the nations. So we can say it this way, that God is judging them. They're receiving this judgment, these words of judgment, because they've failed to be a light to the nations. They've failed to be who they were called out and created to be. So um, look at verse 16. Uh, this is the word of the Lord coming to, to Ezekiel. Actually, skip down to verse 20. We'll just hit some highlights here. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, this would be the nation saying of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. They go into exile because, the, the, and this doesn't make sense, these are people of the Lord. And so what God says, though, is I had concern for my holy name, which is the house of Israel, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So this is the problem. They've been out among the nations. They've profaned the name of the Lord. God's name is not being made great as it was supposed to. Now the solution. Verse 22. What's he going to do about it? Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations, listen to the result, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So promise spirit right here. Oftentimes, and we rightly think this, that, that there is this uh, renewed sense of um, it's all the good, all the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection come to us by the Spirit. And so we are indwelt by the Spirit, and we think often that, that we think about transformation in that context, rightly so. But what God's talking about here is that He's going to, he's going to cleanse them from their uncleannesses, He's going to sprinkle them clean, He's going to cleanse them from their idols. Why? in order that his name would not, no longer be forsaken um, or that it would no longer be profaned among the nations. There's a missional purpose for this. It's for the sake of his name being known that all the nations would then know that he's the Lord. So it says something similar. If you skip down to verse 33, on the day that I will cleanse you from all your iniquities, and he goes to say these great things, I'll cause the cities to be inhabited, the waste places shall be rebuilt. The land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, and so, again, they're going to know that, that he's Lord. Uh, Ezekiel 37, we won't look at. This is, the, uh, this is where he's called to prophesy to the dry bones. And they come to life. Um, so Israel is hoping for this day. This is, this is really the point. Israel is hoping for this day when the Spirit's going to be outpoured and the restoration that they're longing for is going to come about. 
So turn over to Acts 2 now, page 909. Any questions on that before we jump into Acts 2? I know that that was a little bit of a different angle to take on that, but I think it's helpful to see then um, all that happens in Acts 2. And so what what I want us to think about here is uh, we're we're being equipped for mission. There are a lot of things happening at Pentecost, but one of the key pieces is that the church is being equipped for mission. So be thinking about that as we look at these passages. So Acts 2, we'll just look at the first uh, four verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So a few quick points on this. Um, The words for spirit and wind and breath, uh, both in Hebrew and Greek, um, are, are interchangeable. They're the same words. And so when you have this, this uh, rushing wind um, and all of this happening, that's, uh, that's meant to, um, we're meant to see those connections there. And this goes back to Ezekiel 37, which we didn't read. But God says there to uh, prophesy to, to the breath, to, uh, to breathe, breathe thus. And there are these winds that come and the bones are then brought back to life. So it's all the same sort of thing happening. And then fire also represents God's presence. Think back to Moses in the burning bush. This is God's presence. Think about Israel being led in the wilderness by this fiery, cloudy pillar that would up and move and lead them where they were to go. So the point here is that that the Spirit brings God's power and His presence to this new people of God. And then look what happens in verses 5 through 12. Again, think here of this, uh, and we'll, we'll ask and answer this question in a moment here. What are the, the missional or outward-facing uh, elements of this passage? So, here, here verses 5 through 8. Now there, were dwelling, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all, the, all these who were speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So what are some uh, kind of missionary or missional um, outward-facing elements even just in those, those few verses? Sorry. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, uh, in verse 5, they're from every nation under heaven. And they are these Jews, but it's probably that they were from the diaspora. They'd been, um, that they, this was happening at Pentecost, which was an Old Testament Jewish feast. And so they had come for this. Um, but they're representative of every nation. And we hear the, this, this story message of Jesus being proclaimed in their own language. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Yes, it's happening right here, that, that God's name is being, um, is being exalted here. Yeah. Uh, and, and then if you look to 9 through 12, we won't read this. You'll see all these nations are listed, and uh, a number of 
commentators will say that that, is, that corresponds to the table of nations that you find back in, in Genesis 10. And what follows Genesis 10 is the tower, the incident of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where what happens there is as a pronouncement of judgment upon them, all of these various languages are given to the peoples, and then they go out all over and they're confused. They, they go out. It's a part of judgment. And what many have pointed out is that Pentecost is in some ways an undoing of that, and that now by the Spirit, this message of Jesus is bringing these people together into one body as they now hear this message of Jesus all in their own languages. So, so you have that, the, that happening in 9 through 12. Peter then gives this uh, sermon as to what's happened at Pentecost, um, tells them all about what Jesus is. Uh, uh, or what he's come to do, who he is. And then look at verse 37. He says, uh, brothers, what shall we do? This is the question and response. And then Peter responds. He calls them to repent and be baptized into this community of the church. And so the Spirit's been outpoured. The church has been equipped to do ministry by the Spirit. And then so this is where we see that answer to the initial question that we ask. How is Jesus' ministry going to continue in his bodily absence? And the answer is the church the Spirit-filled community that is the church. And so, a quote from Bartholomew and Goheen, "...the exalted Christ will now work by His Spirit, who thus becomes the primary actor in the book of Acts, to bring good news to the ends of the earth. The Spirit's first work is to form a community, to share in the salvation of the kingdom, and to be a channel of that salvation to others." So this is who we are as a church. Um, so many have called the church a missional community in that way. And so that there's the mission given to the church then is to, in the words of Luke, to, to bear collective witness to Jesus as Savior and King. And we do that by our worship and our life together before a watching world. And so what I want to do, um, yeah, for, probably for the remainder of our time here, is look at this passage uh, that, that describes the church. Pentecost has just happened and then... They then were told by Luke of this community of people that gathered together. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I've pulled out a few themes to highlight from this, but I'd like to, to discuss each of these. So uh, the, the Spirit creates a community that first moves towards God in worship. What, what elements of worship do we see in this passage that characterizes this, this church. Breaking of bread, which uh, is most likely referring to, to the Lord's Supper in some kind of early preliminary way. What else? Yeah, teaching and, and fellowship and praying. Uh, it's all happening together in this, in this body. Anywhere else? Yes, yeah, they're together, that this, they're, they're gathering together to do this, and we'll talk some specifically about fellowship in the next point here, but yeah, they're gathering together to worship, and you even see that in, in verse 46, 
they're attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So they're, they're worshiping together and then doing things outside of that as well. Sorry, say again? Yeah, so, okay, the, yeah, and we'll get to that in a moment too. There, there's, this, uh, there's this love, charity, mercy uh, aspect to what they're doing as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this is good. This is that, that, that's where we're going to go as well. Exactly. Um, and if you look at verse 43, this awe has come upon every soul that, in the midst of, of their fellowship together. And so, um, so we have these elements of worship together. Uh, some of this has already been mentioned. Um, you guys answered my question before I asked it. Um, but why, maybe we could just pan, pan out for a second and ask the question, Maybe why or how? Let's ask why. Why is worship important for mission? Why is worship important in terms of mission? Yeah. Yeah, there's the great quote from uh, Piper that says that missions exist because worship, because, I'm butchering it, because worship doesn't exist everywhere or something like He says it really nicely. Um, but it's to the end of making uh, all people worshipers of the one true God. Yeah. Yeah, what else? Focus? Yeah, it's in terms of the reason why we'd be doing that. and it would, uh, it's What mission is about. Yeah, that ultimately we're looking uh, that, that Jesus and uh, the worship of God is the focus. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so, um, yeah, we're reminded that it's his mission that, uh, and that it's sort of the fuel of our, of our mission as well, that everything and anything that we're going to be doing would, would come through this um, relationship and worship of him. Don, yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah, that's great. That yeah, where um, yeah, in both cases, there's there is this supernatural empowering of the spirit and um, and fellowship with the spirit. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Katie. Yeah, mission is a natural overflow of worship. Yeah, and then when we think broadly and rightly to say that. Of course, what we do when we gather together as the people of God, there is something uh, unique and special about that uh, in terms of that corporate worship. But it's completely accurate to say that the whole of our lives is worship. And so that as we are loving, serving our neighbors and proclaiming this message of Jesus, that is worship too. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, more, more of being sustained and being and uh, abiding in Jesus that we would then uh, overflow into our lives around us as well. Great. Okay, so worship is a huge part of, of this community, and it's even that is connected to to mission. Um, secondly, then, spirit creates a community that moves towards one another in fellowship. And a number of us, a number of you, pointed this out already. What are those elements of fellowship that we see in the passage? Eating together, yep. I didn't realize it's ten forty-three. Um, praying together, 
Yeah, even just the fact that all of these things are together, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and so that these very real, in this case, these material needs that they have are being met by brothers and sisters in the same body. And we would rightly uh, assume that other needs are being shared that, uh, in that context as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, assume that the, the assumed um, corporate character of it, that there's this communal character. Yeah. Okay, so I've already mentioned some of this, but why, why would fellowship be important in terms of mission? Okay, great. It builds one another up. We can encourage one another to be involved in the lives of, of our neighbors and those around us. Yeah. Yeah, we can't do it all on our own. So important to remember that the uh, Great Commission is given to the church as a whole uh, and that God gives diverse gifts to His people and we're going to be doing different things. We're all a part of this one huge mission that He's accomplishing, but that doesn't mean that every person's doing the exact same thing. Great, great point. And I think that diversity speaks to the diverse majesty of who God is. That yeah. Not, Yeah, yeah, Carter's saying it speaks to the, the, uh, the glorious vastness of God and the diversity of gifts as well. Yes. Um, okay, let me do this real quick here. Um, and then, so lastly, the Spirit creates a community that moves towards our neighbors in mission. We see this, if you look at the end of this passage, and this was already pointed out. They're praising God, uh, verse 47, they're doing all these things together. And what's happening is that then they're having favor with all the people. So their relationship with with the people around them is being impacted by who they are as the people of God. And these very, um, frankly, ordinary things that they're doing. Worship and being together uh, and sharing in their lives. At the same time, those ordinary things are extraordinary. And then the result is that the Lord adds to their number day by day those who are being saved. And we see that in verse 41 as well, that the Lord added 3,000 souls that day. So what you have is this, um, you get a picture of this, this, uh, this compelling community of people that has, have been restored and reconciled to their Creator and to one another. And as they move into the lives of people around them, these people come to know and believe in the one who can accomplish that in their lives as well. So I've got a lot of quotes there that I'm not going to read now. I would um, encourage you to look at those um, because they get at some of the call of who we are. I'll point out a couple. The quote from Newbegin. This is really good. The world will always consciously or unconsciously judge the church's message by what the church is. That makes sense to us in that, you know, you can't say one thing and do another. But that's, I think, hugely significant, again, as we think about the quality of our life together in terms of our fellowship, our care for one another, and how that impacts then this message that we would proclaim. And the two are inseparably bound up together. 
So the world will always consciously or unconsciously judge the church's message by what the church is. And then a great quote from Christine Pohl, the best testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. Um, and so, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Um, Keller gets at a lot of these things in his paper, Why Plant Churches. I intended to bring copies of that. They're sitting on my desk right now in my office. Um, so he talks a good bit about why and kind of working some of these things out in terms of then our mission in the world. Uh, and I think it's really, really helpful. I'm going to have to just leave it at that because surprise, surprise, we're 1047. Um, next week, Ryan is going to conclude the series with mission accomplished. Get it? Mission accomplished. Revelation 21 and 22. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, the, the beautiful, the, the manifold way that you have restored us to yourself and to one another, that uh, you are in, your, in and of yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are relationship. You restore us to relationship with you. You restore us to relationship with one another. And it's through, through these relationships then that you uh, advance your purposes and your mission in this world. And we pray, Lord, that you would use each of us um, to do that, to accomplish what you desire in this place. We thank you for uh, being uh, fully equipped to do this work by your Spirit, and we pray that we would give ourselves to it and that we would, uh, that we would rejoice that we have been given such a glorious task. And we pray this through Jesus, our King and Savior. Amen.